This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time. We're continuing in our series of Campus Voices features that deal with a look toward the future and how the future of the various mass media organizations and uh, entities are, uh, how it looks for them, how they're adapting, uh, how they're changing in an ever-changing marketplace. And toward that end, our guest this week on Campus Voices is Juan Perez, Jr., the education reporter for Politico and a 2009 graduate of the College of Journalism and Mass Communications who joins us to talk about his career and where the industry is headed. Juan, thank you for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what? let me kind of back up and get a little bit of history first. What brought you to the university in the first place, and what was your goal when you came here for a career? Boy, I'm not sure I had a clear idea of what I wanted to do for a career when I uh, started my higher education journey. I, I wish I did. Um, but I started out as, a, as an English major. And uh, I, I didn't immediately go to the College of Journalism and Mass Communications, uh, although I'm glad I did. I think what 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 I what I first needed to do was kind of establish what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And then when I was a freshman in college, I was definitely at a bit of a crossroads. There was a, a decision I had to make whether I was going to go into more of a traditional business track, whether I wanted to pursue a career in the law, uh, perhaps in academia, um, but ultimately what became an inflection point for for lack of a better term was joining the college newspaper the daily nebraska and uh finding not only a, a group of people uh that i could call a community and, and home but uh, also uh a, a thing that paid money <laughs> and uh and and not only that but uh, something that i could potentially use uh a broad array of skill sets and uh, not just, uh, and, and the other things I was studying at the time, whether it was uh, political science or international affairs and meld it all into one job or career path and, and place. So it really started there. Um, from there, it was kind of a traditional pathway that I think uh, a lot of my, my colleagues and fellow classmates took too. You know, you get the internship here, you get the internship there, you sort of find out what you like to do, what, where you want to grow, where, where your skills kind of are. And like many of us, it grew into something, at least journalism, grew into something that I, that I really loved. And uh, I haven't looked back since. So leaving the university in 2009, where was your first stop on the employment ladder? Uh, the Omaha World Herald. Um, and part of the reason for that was because the college had uh, an excellent fellowship program at the time. If if I recall correctly, it may have been the inaugural year that uh, the college had a straight up partnership with the Omaha World Herald to bring in a, a group of interns who uh, worked out of the Lincoln Bureau and contributed to a whole variety of stories for the publication. Um, so that's how I got my start. It turned into a summer internship. And from there, I was fortunate enough, given the job market at the time and, and the realities of the economy, to uh, land a job at the paper there, covering uh, breaking news and then cops, courts, city politics, any number of different topics, which uh, was was essential for, you know, an essential foundation for my growth as a journalist. So what has led you to Politico? How did What was between the World Herald and, and where you are now? 
So after my time at the World Herald, I, I spent about seven years at the Chicago Tribune in Illinois, um, which was uh, honestly one of the best experiences of my professional career. Uh, so was Omaha for that matter. But Chicago was a place where uh, my world really just expanded in a whole number of different ways because uh, you're covering the same kinds of stories, but on a, on a much bigger scale and, and in a city and in a community that... Uh, is enormously challenged, but uh, deeply, deeply rich at the same time. Uh, and so it was, it, it, it's it's a beautiful city. And uh, honestly, it's probably a place I would hope to still be today if it wasn't for the fact that there was a good opportunity that came up in Washington. And um, part of the internal debate that I had at the time was, um, you know, I, I always wanted to work closer to the federal government and closer to the centers of uh political power and, and policy power in the world. And of course, there's nowhere else to go in the United States than, than DC. And uh, gratefully, um, um, thankfully rather, um, Politico just had an opportunity and I was in kind of the right place at, at the right time. And so now after um, a very long initial three-year stretch during the pandemic, uh, now I'm you know completing my fourth year here at the publication and it's been uh, nonstop to put it mildly. Um, with not just with elections and uh, the machinations of Congress, but also uh, just the the ever shifting landscape of of policy development in Washington, and learning about how uh, you know the levers of power at this form of government has a very real impact on on uh, the everyday lives of people has been a really a rich experience. You uh, start as you said right at the uh, about at the outbreak of COVID. So yep. there so many new things all at once, a new a new job, a new market to work in, new responsibilities, and then an entirely new working environment. How did the the onset of the uh, of the pandemic affect the way that you worked? Oh man, it, um, I'm, I feel like I'm still trying to get my bearings uh, from uh, from the consequences of what happened during that time and and you nailed it. I I arrived in Washington. Um, I want to say, let's call it six months before the pandemic started. And um, as, as you can imagine, when you're starting a new job is uh, challenging enough. But uh, when, when you're in an, an environment in an utterly new newsroom like this one, it's really important to build connections with people, meet face to face with people and just do the things that a newsroom does on a day to day basis. And it's really hard to do that in any other kind of environment, but the physical space that we occupy every day. Uh, here at the office, um, I really thought there was no other way to do it. And I, you know, starting in March of 2020, I got a pretty rude awakening that we would have to, you know, take on some forced adaptation to figure out a new way of doing things. Um, and we did it. And and it's uh, and and we've I think started transitioning into the new world that, uh, you know, a, a hybrid of remote and and home based work is is going to look like here for the foreseeable future. But as far as what changed, we had to get, like everybody else, we had to get so savvy so quickly on just the few digital tools that we were going to rely on, you know, an utterly new workflow for uh, how, a, how a story not only gets conceived from that initial conversation between an editor or a colleague, but how it actually moves through the process of getting onto a, a page, getting into the system, you know, moving through the process of edits and getting out into the world. All of that is done in a completely decentralized and utterly foreign and unfamiliar environment for, for me, at least. That's, that was unlike anything I had ever done before. Um, 
but you get used to anything and and so did we you know i my my workspace at uh, at my home uh, is still just as cluttered as it was for the course of, as it has been over the course of the past 3 years or so uh, that hasn't changed although maybe i should work on that when i get back tonight um, but it's i i i think what's part of the the lesson that i'm trying to bring out of this was like okay what worked then you know and and how can i apply that to um, the what works now and and for lack of a better term what worked before this i'm talking to you from uh, our office right now where i spend uh you know three or four days a week here um and that's that's just the way it is now i'm, I'm not in five days a week anymore i don't know that uh i will be anytime in the near future because that fifth day is either spent on capitol hill or out you know with with folks in the community or, or sources who themselves aren't necessarily home or in their offices downtown or anywhere else. Um, so I'm still getting used to that. And I think a lot of my colleagues are still getting used to that. But uh, I got to say, I am really grateful to be back in a newsroom because there is still nothing quite like having the opportunity to just communicate with somebody who's sitting next to you with either just a glance or a glare or a couple of quick sentences, something you just can't do over Zoom or, or Slack. Um, but that flexibility, being able to handle both of those different worlds, I think is something um, that not only we need to stay sharp on, but uh, future generations of journalists are going to have to master as well. I think some of those changes, as you allude, uh, had already sort of begun before the pandemic hit. We noticed here in our newsroom in the College of Journalism and Mass Communications that uh, there were fewer and fewer people working in the newsroom because, uh, as we already knew, that's not where the news happens. It's right. happening out there. And the plethora of tools that we had available now to go cover those stories out in the wild made it more sensible for those reporting students to get out there and see what was going on and, and cover it out there. But certainly uh, the experiences that you talked about mirrored almost exactly what happened to us because we went home for spring break in 2020 and didn't come back for 18 months. Yeah. And we had we extended spring break by a week to try to get ourselves up and running to convert all of our courses to fully online. I'd never taught an online course in its entirety before. And wow. uh, we were scrambling as well to learn new tools, as were all of our students, and to try to salvage as much as we could of that semester and then do a better job with the next semester when we had more of a chance and more of a chance to attack it properly. But I think the common thread I seem to, to get from a lot of folks is that even though it was uncomfortable and it was scary, that there were some positives that we learned about how to do work better and more efficiently and, and do it online. Do you sense that there are some things that are actually better about the way you do your job now that might not have happened had we not been forced into the pandemic setting? Absolutely. For one thing, I learned how to be in four places at once. Um, you know, you can monitor a hearing in the Senate. Uh, while keeping an eye on a, a digital briefing, um, you know, you, 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 you learn to challenge your attention span in, in, in ways you never thought possible, that's for sure. And one of the big opportunities that I found that uh, is, is still really useful is the fact that, you know, really, you can collaborate with a team that could be based anywhere in the country, folks in California, New York, and in DC on a story project, while at the same time, you're paying at least as much attention as possible to uh, a, a briefing or a hearing or something like that that may be happening simultaneously in another space. 
this was one thing that I could never do if I was stuck in a conference room uh, somewhere or, you know, in a meeting with a source or something like that. Now there's a balance to this kind of thing, right? Um, but even just some of the digital tools that, uh, you know, we, we use a lot more on a daily basis, whether it's Otter, Zoom, or, or anything like this, it's, in my opinion, allowed us to become just a lot more productive, uh, a lot more plugged in, and just a lot more capable of keeping an eye on things that are happening in other communities outside of the Beltway, outside of the East Coast, um, and, and just do so in, in a much more flexible manner than we could have before. So what I think I hear you saying is even though we're largely back to teaching in real time and face to face here, that there are some things we should continue to teach as though we are now in this 24 uh, seven Zoom society and to make sure our students are adept at doing all of that as well. Yep, absolutely. You cover education along with other things at Politico. What, uh, what's the sort of sphere of stories that you normally get assigned to cover within that broad umbrella? It's changed a lot over the course of uh, the pandemic. I think at, at the outset, um, when everything changed, one of our first and top priorities was understanding how schools were going to be affected by this. And, and we knew it was going to be lengthy. We knew it was going to be disruptive. We had no idea about how lengthy or how disruptive it was going to be. And so for two years, so much of the conversation was consumed about the very things you were just talking about a moment ago, the 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 drawbacks of of online learning, for example, the the opportunities contained within there. Um, but in the context of a K through twelve schooling environment, what every parent and every student learned very quickly was that there are just some things that you can't do through a computer screen. Uh, and, and there are needs that students have, especially young students who are learning to read, who are learning to interact with each other socially, that just cannot be replaced uh, by, by the digital realm or can't be replicated in the digital realm. So some of so much of our early coverage was trying to figure out the consequences of that, how schools were adapting to that, how they weren't adapting to that, trying to kind of quantify the, the sort of sorts of intangible costs that were associated with that. And at the same time, a lot of what we were doing was trying to provide critical up to the day, up to the moment intelligence about this brand new novel pathogen that nobody had ever encountered before. Nobody really knew how it was transmitted at the outset. Nobody really knew what to do to stop it other than, you know, obviously very uh, draconian and, and restrictive lockdown measures. Um, that that was, a, was a huge priority. And, and I got to say that, that I have to credit uh, you know, my past experience in the Tribune uh, for some of this stuff too, because, you know, it was there that I first started learning about how to report about public health and how I first started to learn reporting about infectious diseases, especially uh, novel coronaviruses that had cropped up a little bit in the international community and, and sort of made their way to the United States in the years prior to the pandemic. Um, but having just even that little bit of a foundation uh, was immensely valuable, at least for me, because it helped me to be able to convey what are often very complex and difficult terms in, in straightforward and hopefully uh, legible ways to an audience that was desperate for information. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't just the K-12 context that we were working through either. I mean, the disruption in the higher education community, as you know, Rick, was was enormous and profound. And, and I, I can't tell you how many conversations I had with college presidents um, deans and, and, and other officials at the higher education level, particularly at smaller schools, 
who were really concerned as to whether or not they would be able to survive this crisis. Even better resourced institutions that spent tens of millions of dollars in an effort to do everything right, whether it was from testing, contact tracing, um, you know, isolated living spaces for infected residents, all of this stuff, even the best resource schools in the country, some of the top institutions you could possibly think of, uh, had real extraordinary challenges kind of implementing this stuff. And, and those that did obviously were not necessarily, uh, not every other school around the country could replicate that kind of, that kind of effort, uh, if only from a resource perspective. So watching the sort of disparate impact uh, in communities across the country as they try to deal with this is, is something that still sticks with me today. Um, and of course, you've got uh, a federal government spread across two presidential administrations at the time who were really still trying to do everything they could to, to figure this out um, with the whole political dimension thrown into it. I mean, we, we didn't even get into that. Um that consumed that consumed a lot of our a lot of our time and attention and and since then it's transitioned into more about the recovery what that looks like how that gets done whether it's getting done um but of course on top of all of this you have a, a highly politicized and and partisan environment surrounding not just K12 but also higher education in this country uh, that is um, going to be incredibly informative, not only for uh, aspirants, for Republican aspirants for the White House in 2024, but no shortage of state and local races. We've already seen this throughout the midterm cycle, where I think we're going to see it play out again in 2024. And these are hugely consequential decision makers uh, and, and offices that folks might necess not necessarily think about, with the exception of the, your, the White House or, or your senator and stuff like that. Um, but these are oftentimes state and local officials who carry out really consequential decisions for families. And so many of those decisions now are being uh, colored by a, a partisan environment uh, that, that is really kind of unlike anything that we've seen in the education space, I, I think, really in, in modern history here. So that's that's really our the, the, the thrust of our of our coverage now. Um, but of course, you know, still there's a, there's a lot to do as far as lessons learned from the pandemic and much like we're, what we're discussing here, what do we carry forward and, and what do we learn from? So you mentioned uh, your mention of the briefings that you had in epidemiology and, and in healthcare and, and life sciences uh, came back to be of great help, unexpectedly perhaps as it might have been, is, is again sort of a, a nice um, reminder to our students of why those general education courses that we make them take are, are very helpful. You never really know when you're going to pull that biology class back up because you have to cover a story that relates to that. I'm sure when you took the job at Politico, the idea of covering a pandemic wasn't the first thing on your on, on your mind that you would be covering. No, um, not at all. Had you anticipated the amount of animosity that the, the pandemic was going to bring and the amount of of, uh, of conflict that it was going to bring in terms of of the whole having to wear masks and having to stay home and, and the the how this led into the discussions of homeschooling and all the sorts of things that came with it? Not at the immediate outset, you know, when everybody was banging pots and pans on street corners and there was this this uh, sense of almost civic duty associated with it, you, there was there was a brief time where you thought to yourself, okay, if if this thing doesn't stretch out over an interminable period, maybe there's, you know, there's a way to get through this. But by month six, um, it became abundantly clear to me anyway, that that was just not going to be the case. And then 
it wasn't just the pandemic though, was it? I mean, the, the, the country's reckoning with race that we encountered during 2020, all the social upheaval that was thrown, everything happened kind of all at once. And to me, that helped illustrate right away that uh, you know the, the the partisan divisions were were not going to be healed, and that if anything, it just exposed the fact that there was so much tension and weakness in the system, and fear and concern, and uh, just plain insecurity out there. And I'm I'm speaking not just from an economic perspective, but uh, but health wise, um, all of this had been curdling prior to the pandemic. It just took uh, a world-changing event to bring it to the surface, combined with a couple of other world-changing effects to turn it into overdrive. Um, so, you know, it, it really became, in the, in the education space, when the debate at the federal level really turned to reopening schools in, you know, the middle of some of the ugliest surges of the pandemic, That's that's that was one example of, of how, you know, we kind of realized that we weren't really going to go back. Um, state laws and and proposals for state laws that started to bubble up in the immediate after, in, in, you know, in um, after the immediate onset of the pandemic, when it came to um, uh, critical race theory and and curricular decisions, that was a clear signal that we weren't going to turn back. Certain election outcomes that happened um, after the immediate onset of the pandemic made it clear that uh, th there was just I, I don't know how to I don't know how to put it here because I'm I'm still processing all of it while I kind of report on it in real time. But real there, there is a you know there is a, a clear partisan division in this country that uh, is still has room to grow depending on on how things how things go. And and to me the pandemic was just kind of a catalyst for for um, a lot of that. If that makes and, sense. And I think there are new. Um constituencies who find themselves at ground zero on some of these things that might not have before. I think heading into the pandemic, at least the impression I have from, and I, I grew up in a family of teachers and have lots of relatives who, who do teach or have taught. And the I think they were surprised to find themselves this day and day, day-to-day -day rank and file educators as having such targets on their backs because of the pandemic in terms of how they were dealing with kids and classroom uh, composure and and disruptions and uh, and now as you mentioned the curricular issues that have that have been brought into the discussion as well that that many of them sort of right, right along the line with librarians finally sort of find find themselves as saying what what, what did we do how did how did we get in this situation yeah school schools have always been political right your your local school board has has always been a source of controversy over the years that's that hasn't changed um the level of politicization is is something else entirely. and 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 i I agree with you. I hear a lot of surprise uh, from folks um, even now that 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 are kind of marveling at, at how far things have have come. Uh, I, I still think there are people out in the space who are still coming to grips with that. Um, but it's here. So what do you make of the, in your reporting of the calls by some members of, of the Congress right now to just do away with the Federal Department of Education entirely? It's not a new idea. Uh, mm -hmm. This this is something that's that's been around for some time. Um, and I think 
while there are still there are still organizations and actors out there who who fully advocate for for this idea and and have set out some pretty detailed roadmaps for how uh, such such a thing could could work um one of the things that when when we discuss it kind of internally here one of the things we always come back to is like that would require uh, an enormous act of Congress, <laughs> not only an enormous act of Congress, but clearly presidential approval. The scale of, of legislative and regulatory rulemaking that would be required to make all of this happen uh, is, is, is big enough that it makes it hard to imagine how such a thing could happen in an era of a, of a divided Congress and divided government in this country. Um, so as as a practical matter, I don't see that as something that's that's happening anytime soon. But as a philosophical matter, it's still absolutely something that's out there and, and has a lot of supporters. Particularly in this uh, this new uh, I don't say new, but this revitalized era of states' rights and sure. uh, the United States of America rather than the the you know the national organization uh, overseeing everything. Have any of these uh, sort of hotbed issues? that have have been heightened because of the pandemic and other other political issues as you mentioned has it made your job any more difficult as a reporter do you find doors generally open to you or are the fact that you also mm-hmm. wear the tag of the media which adds another level of skepticism to folks who are tend to be skeptical of a lot of of the institutions in our country um are they still eager to talk to you about these stories you know i'm i'm blessed to work for an organization where you know if when when you call from you know my shop people do tend to pick up the phone and and do tend to want to talk that's not a universal sentiment though um and it's still you know for the students out there who might be listening to this you know it's it's more than just you you need to be more than just your organization you still have to be able to talk to people and you still have to understand how to gain their trust, how to interact with them honestly, how to see them as, as, as human beings and more than just a a voice who's going to supply quotes for X and Y story. Um, This, I I think this is one of the critical things to come out of the pandemic for me was the importance of, you know, if if you can't be face to face with someone in a room and, and you're calling them from cold calling them from across the country, you need to be able to to talk to them and to and and not just like a, an insurance salesman would or something like that, but actually really talk to them, and most importantly to listen to them. Um, that I, I found that you know it's it's not a hundred percent, but I, I have found that when you make an honest concerted effort to do those things, even those difficult doors can still open for you sometimes and and often do again not always there are a lot of people who would rather have nothing to do with you and and i can understand that especially in this environment um but now more than ever it is imperative that we redouble our efforts to challenge our own thinking to challenge our own conventions to to find people who who can teach us things that we never would have otherwise considered who can offer us new perspectives um it's it's never been more important now than it is now and and i i hope i hope that you know if nothing else we've gotten better at doing that and and we can improve at that and and uh and we really have no choice but to do it so pleased to hear you put such emphasis on listening because that's a great skill and one that i think 
too many young reporters who are so focused on I've got my list of questions I have to ask. Oh, I'm also recording this. I got to keep an eye on recording levels. And yep. I've only got 10 minutes. I got to keep an eye on the clock and miss a golden opportunity for a follow up because they're distracted yep. or they're nervous or whatever else it might be. I'm sure this is true with you. The number of times I've had a whole series of questions lined up and didn't get to any of them because where the answers to the first questions led were far more interesting than anything I had pre-planned. So, but had I not listened, I would not have gone there. So I'm glad to hear you uh, strengthen that, that, uh, that cause. Let's talk about where the, where all of this has been going and we've been on that theme already, but uh, pandemic aside, had the pandemic not even come along, what, what changes in, the reporting and, and journalistic field had you seen throughout your journey from the time you left here in 2009 up until when you joined Politico? How is the the process of covering stories changing? Hmm. Uh, boy, I'm still wrestling with the answer to that question, and I think I will be for a long time. But I one one thing that I think of a lot is is speed, um, and by that I mean a couple of things for one i mean the speed of actually turning around content right it's it's not you're unfortunately not in an environment where you get to spend days and and weeks on a story sometimes and and then just kind of put it out when you can some people can do that but really you know especially in in this day and age you have to be able you have to be something of a short order cook you have to have multiple dailies in the can. You have to be able to manage newsletters. You have to manage the podcast appearance that you need, the event that you're moderating, um, and uh, not to mention the fact the uh, you know the every the the, uh, the the evergreen stories, the enterprise, uh, the things that you really want to work on. Um, and so you have to be more of a project manager, a personal project manager now than I think you really used to be even ten years ago. Um, and there's also the speed of, um, and, and I'm trying to think of the best way to put this here. There's a speed in which you need to actually deliver your content, right? Like the the act of writing the first three or four paragraphs of a story cannot be some kind of meandering exercise. Attention spans have not gotten any better over the course of recent history, uh, and you know we're competing for maybe ten or twelve seconds of a reader's time from the moment they click on that headline to the moment they scroll through the first two or three paragraphs of, of a story, you have almost no time in a practical sense to capture their attention, to convey information and to keep them hooked and reading. Um, so, you know, that makes, that has a whole bunch of implications, not only for the tone in which you, you write a story, but the length of your paragraphs, the length of your sentences, how you order the information, how you organize the information, um, Axios and Politico and, and other organizations have kind of utterly reinvented what a, the traditional story format looks like, because oftentimes what you'll see, especially for breaking pieces of information, is uh, almost like a list of bullet points that kind of break down the most fundamental information, why it matters, what it means, what's next, in a way that can be digested rapidly. And uh, it might be surprising to a lot of uh, young folks coming up now that, you know, you're, you're not necessarily you're not going to be spending your time writing two or three thousand word narratives. Um, in fact, you need to be delivering on multiple platforms. But when it comes to the printed word uh, in a way that may look utterly unlike what you were what you were learning uh, in high school or, or in college. Had you anticipated the since you mentioned the various platforms? Had you anticipated and were you ready for the number of, of 
different forms of media platforms that you would be asked to uh, to to create content for social media yeah i mean and and i social i i have personally a little bit of an ambivalent relationship with social media um you know i use it as a reporting tool on a daily basis but it's not something that i'm uh, regularly interacting with you know i mean my twitter feed is a is a pretty barren expanse right now admittedly um you know but i do feel that i emerged with an understanding that like okay we need to be able to do more than just write we need to be able to uh, shoot video we need to be able to capture audio we need to be able to be presentable on both video and audio depending on the circumstances um and we need to be able to um do do more than just be kind of a person huddled behind a, a computer at a desk we, we need to be in the field like we were talking about earlier we need to be prepared to to encounter all sorts of different physical environments and social situations and what have you uh and and you need to be prepared to actually physically face to face interact with people while while you do so i i the story's in the field and and i knew that coming out of school thankfully um but it's something that i'm still learning about every single day whether it's you know how to how best to marshal uh a piece of content into a short video clip or how best to digest it for a, a podcast audience, um, how best to present it to a, a very small but influential group of policymakers and their staffs and their officials. You know, there's there's just, you need to be adaptable more than anything else. And uh, that's that's not turning around any, that's, that's never going to turn around. You need to be able to do more and more and more. Uh, and that's just the, ever, that's the reality of the everyday pressure of the job now. What has been the biggest challenge for you in in learning all of this new stuff and in diversifying and picking up the speed, as you've noted here? What have you struggled to uh, to to master? The the balance of doing everything all the time at once. Um, it, personally, you know, I want I want to get better at and I've I've worked on this and I don't know that I'm I don't know that I'm ever going to master it. I don't think I will, but how do you be the best short order cook to, you know, pivot back to something I mentioned earlier, imaginable in journalism, right? How do you keep that steady stream of insightful daily stories going out to your audience while still managing the longer the the medium and and longer term enterprise uh, that can really get somebody to sit down look at the page and be like, "Oh, I'm learning something that I never thought about before and, and learning about it in a completely new and insightful way. Um, that day-to-day -day challenge, uh, sometimes it just boils down to scheduling. Other times it just boils down to getting control of your attention span and uh, your, your checklist at work. But being able to get all of that and, and kind of maintain that flow state while doing it, that's that's something I'm aspiring to do. What do you think are the biggest forces that are driving all of these changes that we've seen in our field? Again, the pandemic notwithstanding, because the the forces of change were certainly present and yeah. exhibiting themselves before the pandemic hit. But what's what do you think is behind a lot of this? There is so much. There are so many demands on our attention nowadays, and and anyone when it comes to information i think sometimes we we maybe overestimate the the value that that we offer to people uh, you know folks can go to any channel they want whether it's on social media youtube you know talk radio and and 
get essentially a customized feed of, of information that, that backs up their own presuppositions or, or anything else uh, on demand, whether it's you know through cable television or, or, or anywhere else or some combination of all of these things. Uh, and so it's it's harder and harder in a, in a field like that to, to stick out and to to grab attention and to establish yourself as a as a as a trusted voice. Um, I think the you know the the hyper partisan nature of the media environment, and, and I mean this for for everybody here, just has really contributed to the overall erosion in public trust in journalism that we see in, in some of these really sobering surveys that that uh, continuously come out. Um, again, I think there's a lot of, a, there are a lot of factors behind that overall decline that, you know, would probably take us an hour to summarize, but the, the, the fundamental reality behind that to me is that, you know, we've, we've got to find a way, we've got to find a way to regain the public's trust. And I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure about how to do that because I know that myself, my colleagues, everybody I've worked with throughout my career is, is devoted, has been and is still devoted to the to the principles of good journalism, right? To, to truth telling, to being a stickler for the facts, for getting it right making sure you're talking to a diverse array of, of voices, checking your own you know, presuppositions at the door, being open to learn and listen and all of those things. I, I can't even count how many people I know in, on a, and encounter on a day-to-day basis who are, who, who are still devoted to those principles. Um, but something isn't quite catching yet. And, and I don't know that it's getting any better, whether it's post-COVID or you know, post-whatever else. And so... That's that's honestly what what kind of keeps me up at night still is is thinking about how how we solve that, um, because again you know if everybody is just you know I'm 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 getting off point here I, I do that sometimes but if everybody is just retreating to their respective silos and we can't you know come together on at least a basic set of agreed upon facts then you know this country and and the world at large has a whole lot of issues in front of it here so I I just uh, I was just going to go there had you not, which was the the concept that uh, all of us in our education were taught to stick to facts and try to keep things as factual as possible and and try to to present all the the, the order of things as, as best we could and then hopefully let readers, viewers, listeners decide for themselves what they they thought were the, the right ones. But when we when we can't even agree on that set of facts, it's not just okay, here here this is here's my perspective on it, here's your perspective. No, there are two different things now, and it seems to be so hard to get people to acknowledge things. On, uh, I'm sure you've seen some of the interviews too, where people are just in denial of things, even when the facts are presented to them in a way that seems hard to ignore, that then so many people will just say, well, I choose just not to believe that. Uh, that makes the journalist's job exponentially harder, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I have students ask me about this a lot about, you know, whether journalists are just supposed to be these sorts of impartial robots that kind of go into a say, you know, this is a super, super hot debate right now, the objectivity question. And I'm not here to to make a ruling one way or, or the other on on that debate. But what I what I try to tell folks is that I'm I'm not asking you to check your identity at the door. I'm not asking you to erase everything you've 
been brought up with and know and, and your own understandings about things, your own culture, your own history, whatever it is. I'm not asking you to put that away. In fact, that makes you a better journalist. That's why we need people from all walks of life and all parts of society to get involved in this business because it just makes us better and it makes the country better if we do it. Um, but what I am asking him to do is is think about the world outside those own perspectives, right? Bring yourself to your job, make that uh, an important part of of how you see the world, how you identify stories, how you how you think about things. But don't assume that you have all the answers, right? Hubris is is one of the is one of the worst things that we can subscribe to or or adopt as part of our daily lives here, right? The the, the world just does not work that way. Um, and we can't forget about uh, you know the the importance of compromise and like we were talking about earlier, listening. Uh, that's that's critical for for our society to function. And, and journalists need to keep that in mind too. In my classes with my students, I'm constantly challenging them to intentionally read or listen to or watch things that they know they're going to disagree with, uh, at least they think they're going to disagree with. Sure. Because they do need to have that diversity of opinion and background. If for no other reason to say, well, why does this person with whom I disagree feel that way? Maybe I should try to understand it from their perspective. But to also be open to the fact that you may find out that there's maybe something that you can't justify in your own right. thought and belief system as well. That, wow, if I hadn't watched this other video, well, maybe that maybe I would have just gone on believing things in my own little echo chamber because I didn't ever force myself to get outside that or in, in, in your parlance to get outside the beltway which yep. I know has been a lot of the criticism of the coverage of at least the 2020 election was that folks that were out in the mid Midwest and following all the different campaigns were not nearly as surprised at the outcome as some of the folks who were only back in the, in the beltway area. So right. uh, that that's, I'm, I'm glad you're saying that to students because we're trying to do the same thing as well to say that uh, first of all, to your point about don't check your identity at the door, that is what makes you, you and what makes you a curious person but it should not also preclude you from being willing to look at the viewpoints of other people and and at least give them a fair shake in your reporting. And um, I know that's tough. And we 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 deal with a lot of students who come in with presuppositions from where they went to school or their family views or whatever. And it's a little scary and perhaps a little intimidating for them to think critically about what they know and and what they don't know and be willing to at least listen to some other viewpoints, but that's partly what going to school is about is to right. challenge yourself and look at other viewpoints. And hopefully that's the best way to arrive at your own. What kinds of um, ethical challenges do you see in your career and in your field moving forward? Since I, I teach our ethics course every other semester, I'm always curious to ask this one of folks, what are some of the ethical conundrums or challenges that you've found yourself looking square in the eyes at? Hmm. I think uh, a lot of the basic ones that you find in in your journalism 101 course are are still out there and and um are still going to be a factor. Um but one thing I'm thinking about now is is this new sort of dawning age of artificial intelligence that we're facing right now and and just the sort of innumerable quandaries that that's going to bring up. Uh, not only, you know, there's tremendous opportunity there. And don't get me wrong and I, and I think there's much much work that we can do to uh, equip young journalists and and mid-career and veteran journalists with some of the tools that are out there. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we need to grapple with what all this means when we're using certain kinds of programs or software to actually generate content, uh, edit content, shape content. 
when we're automating these uh, sorts of decisions in a way. Again, these are some of these decisions are a little bit further down the road, but not that far from where I'm sitting. Um, so that that's that's been a big point of concern for me. You know, how do we set standards that are that are workable that allow us to take advantage of some of this new technology, but but still allow us to adhere to uh, you know the the fundamental principles of, of journalism, fact checking, and everything else that uh, that help you know you know drive and inspire us every day. So that's that's one category that that I'm I'm really concerned about. Um, but I think. And, and and this this sort of goes back to the point we were just talking about here. Uh, one one thing that we need to keep in mind is is whether we're incorporating a, a diverse array of voices uh, in into our reporting. And I don't just mean from a from an ethnic perspective. You know, obviously that that's or a gender perspective. Those those two are obviously very important. You know, the the more diverse our, our source base is, the more diverse our knowledge base is. Um, but I'm talking from a perspective approach right and and i'm i'm talking about um finding finding ways to ensure that that uh that young reporters understand that that's part of the job too and that that is in in a certain sense kind of an ethical obligation uh not necessarily for the express purpose of of platforming something or or to you know we're not trying to go down that sort of a road here but but we do want to make sure that we instill this sort of belief that um you know incorporating a broad range of views and and talking to a whole range of people is is in in a way kind of an, an ethical obligation right because if we're sort of sticking again to the to the same narrow pool uh we're not doing our jobs properly uh if, if nothing else i hope that makes sense but absolutely and something i'm still thinking about completely agree um that uh, the more voices the better uh, from every ethnic and also ideological standpoint you can think of uh, that uh, that that is that's that's part and parcel of being a doing your due diligence and being a good reporter i trust you probably saw the story from earlier this week about the several ai gurus that issued their concern about ai possibly bringing about the end of all mankind as we know it that yeah, was I did. a bit dramatic but it made you kind of clear your sinuses a bit on that yeah it did and uh you know i I think it was uh, it was last year. It was in twenty, maybe middle of twenty one, uh, early twenty two. I was uh, talking to a group of students about this funny piece of software that could uh, basically spit out Harry Potter fan fiction on command. And and what was this interesting thing called GPT three? And what would it what would it mean for not only our jobs but just the broader economy? If the, you know this this big kind of like bloviating speech that I gave to a group of students about this about this thing and, and look at where we are now, you know, uh, less than a year later, I, I, there's a lot of hype to this, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I have no doubt that these technologies will be transformative. Uh, the degree to which they are is, is kind of up to us and will be decided by, by regulators if they choose to take it up, no doubt. Um, at the same time, you know, there, there are also limits, clear limits of this technology, right? Um, but one of the things I, I choose to 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 take the perspective that like is is this potentially an existential threat for all all sorts of industries and people and things? Yeah, you you, you bet it could be if it's not managed properly. At the same time, though, I do think there is an opportunity here, unlike any other, to make us uh, you know the secret sauce to growth is productivity, and these tools can potentially help us if if they're managed properly, if they're developed responsibly. 
I have to emphasize that. Uh, and if they're in, and if they're used in a way, like I said earlier, that kind of comports to the same, you know, original values base that we have as journalists here, not to not to weaponize these things, but uh, to to um, to make them useful uh, and to make them more useful, not only for ourselves as we try to churn out more and more content every day, but also for the people who rely on us for information. We can find new ways to present it and, uh, you know, new ways of being uh, insightful and, and provocative and, and all the things that good journalists are. If the hallmark of all of the various codes of ethics to which we claim we adhere uh, is to, first of all, try to find the truth and and be honest in all things we do, how much of a challenge does this present to you in terms of sifting out what's factual from what looks awfully factual, but I just can't quite be sure? Right. Um, This is another thing I'm thinking about. Like, we have to equip students to not only be able to wield these tools, but to be able to, to, to decipher them, right? Uh, this, this sort of era of deep fake video that's coming out uh, and, and really starting to grow in prominence here uh, is, is going to be much more difficult to kind of, you know, forensically unpack. And part of the truth-seeking process is going to be determining, you know, what's written by a bot, you know, what sort of, you know, pressure campaign has been, you know, just, it's just some sort of astroturfing bid that's been aided by, you know, AI tools or whatever else. Is this video from a a public official in some other country where he or she says some really strange and wacky things? Is this real or not? We have to be able to be, we need to be more adept at, at finding out how to unpack that stuff, how to forensically investigate it. And uh, in some cases, really operate with a with a level of restraint that we might not otherwise be accustomed to. Right, that the moment that something slides into your inbox, um, you need to take, if nothing else, like two or three extra beats to really think about this information, whether it's legit or not. Go through a couple of extra steps to try to confirm its veracity before blasting it out in either a tweet or a, or a hastily written breaking news article for a, a major news website. Um, Again, the, the the practical steps of what this looked like, you know, we've got to figure that out and soon. But um, I, I do think it's it's very important that uh, we we equip not only young journalists, but again, the the mid career folks and the veterans with uh, ways to figure this kind of thing out. Yeah, asking a reporter to pump the brakes a little bit in a newsroom that's always that's, saying deadlines. Let's be first. Right. That's uh, well, that's a, that's a tough. A it's tough not one. easy. Uh, it's not easy. The great quote about I'd rather be accurate than first comes to mind, but uh, <laughs> that's not always the case, That, uh, that depending on who you work for. So given all the things we've talked about, what are some of the skills or traits that you feel are really beneficial to employees coming into your career field uh, now coming out of school and down the road? What What do you tell young folks who aspire to, to do what you do? Um. There, there's a whole lot of technical skills that you can have that uh, would would really make you useful to to newsrooms anywhere. I don't want to minimize the importance of those at all, uh, and they are going to continue to be important. Uh, you know, staying adept with technology is is crucial here. However, at the same time, uh, the fundamental practices of blocking and tackling and reporting, the, the understanding the importance of how to get out on the street, how to go to your local government, whichever, you know, whatever entity it might be, whether it's a city council, a school board, a zoning board of appeals in a small town somewhere, and understanding the mechanics of how local government works, how bureaucratic process works, and, um, you know, 
understanding how to just really, this sounds crazy, but just talk to people. Having those sorts of soft human skills are more important than they've ever been now, I think, because, you know, you are the face of your organization, no matter where you go on the street, and you need to be prepared to represent it as such at every single point of your day, you know, not just when you're on the clock. Um, but, it, you know, going back to the sort of bureaucratic understanding thing, you know, I, I, I hear from a lot of young reporters who have justified aspirations of being foreign correspondents, opinion columnists, big time national political reporters. And the thing I always remind them of is that those folks who you look up to all came from somewhere. And more often than not, they started covering a local school board, started covering a city council, they started covering a police department in a in a city or a town that might not seem that important. But you better believe that the stories that come out of those environments, the stories that come out of being able to talk to a city council member uh, on, on, on the sidebar of a meeting, the stories that come from being able to read and parse a technical document about, uh, you know, a neighborhood development or, um, you know, a, a grant program or something like that. Those are insanely important stories to local communities that that uh, that that matter more than you know some national headline about a presidential race you know as, as far as the the person living in, in said city is concerned so the the um those fundamentals haven't changed right uh the 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 um the importance and i would add to that it's it's critically important that you just get out of the journalism school. And, and, and let me explain that, you know, you, you, you're devoted to your studies because you're learning everything there. You're, I'm not saying that you don't do that, but learning something like political science, economics, sociology, philosophy, history, um, statistics. Um, these are skills that will make you not just a better human, uh, but a better journalist. And, and, and the more of a, of a broader understanding that you can afford to give yourself when, you know, you're at that critical stage of, of your, of your growth as a, as a young person and as an adult, um, the, it's just going to be better. Your work is going to be better. I am, I, the, I think the thing I'm probably proudest of, of my not exactly sterling academic career was the fact that I did a double major and a double minor, um, because that just gave me a broader perspective on so many things that I still bring to my work every single day. Um, between that, learning how to work the street and being a stickler for the facts, getting it right, and uh, you know the the bread and butter basics of being a reporter, you know that stuff still matters, and and you you can't ignore that. You'll be pleased to know that uh, your your college still encourages double majoring and still requires at least one minor. So we're encouraging folks to get out there and do more of what you were just talking about and. Uh, our data uh, data uh, faculty members will be thrilled to hear you talk about the the number of intriguing stories you can parse out of a spreadsheet by just uh, by looking at that and going those numbers don't work. <laughs> you just got to know where to look. You so, just got to know where to look. Absolutely. So, what's in your future? What's next for you? You 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 feel good about where you are right now? There's enough to keep you engaged in this for quite some time, or is there something that you're still shooting for down the road? Boy, that's a big question. I, um, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate to be where I am right now. Um, there it's, it's, it's a tough business out there. I'm, I'm not going to lie to anybody listening to this. It's not easy. Uh, and to, to get here is a, is a privilege to get to the tribune was a privilege to get to the Omaha world Herald was a privilege. It really was. Um, 
I, I, I really feel that each of those experiences have, have been like, you know, every step that I took was kind of along a, a, a path, I guess you could say towards, you know, whether it's national reporting or something else, but it wasn't necessarily something that I had, had planned out. You know, I, I didn't, you know, when I, when I, I wasn't expecting to leave the world Herald when I did, and I wasn't expecting to leave the Tribune when I did either. Um, so I, you know, when it comes to like what my future plans are, it's it's really hard to say because there are a lot of other factors outside of my control that will influence where I am or where I'm not. But I'm lucky to say, and I'm blessed to say that this is a, a good new news organization with a lot of growth potential, with a lot of really, really smart people and uh, really hardworking people operating inside of it. Um, and so there's not much more I could ask for, to be honest with you. And your particular beat has a seemingly endless number of interesting stories to to tease out as well. So you, I don't think you're going to run dry on stuff to talk about anytime soon. Never a dull moment. Never. Even covering those local school board meetings is a lot more exciting than it might have been 10 or 15 <laughs> years exactly ago. exactly right. So. Exactly right. Well, uh, I think that the the answer of the future in many cases goes back to that concept of listening, because if, if, you're, if you're listening along the line, you may come up with something that perhaps even as a career you hadn't even thought about before. I know I'm certainly not doing now what I thought I'd be doing when I was in college, but I listened along the way and thought, oh, that sounds intriguing. And so yeah. you never know where life may take you. So we'll look forward to following where it takes you. And I appreciate your time in, in being able to visit with us today about past, present, and future. Thanks for your patience with my rambling. Really appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> Far from it. It was fascinating. I appreciate it very much. Our guest today on Campus Voices, Juan Perez Jr., the education reporter for Politico, talking about the futures of all of our industries. I'm Rick Alloway. This has been Campus Voices. And as always, I thank you for your time. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.